Good morning. I want to welcome you today, and I want to invite you to get your copy of God's Word out as we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Romans throughout this year, and I want to invite you to turn in those Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 26 through 32, Romans 1, verses 26 through 32. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people say, amen. Amen. Now, our message today is titled, How the Fall Affects Us All. And I've, I've borrowed this title from a message uh, by a pastor named J.D. Greer because I, I think it just captures so very well what God is saying to us, his central message for us as his people in these verses. And I want to be very upfront about this passage. We, we must not get confused or sidetracked. Paul's words here are addressed to every single one of us, not just some of us. And it's gonna be very easy for uh, some who agree with what I'm about to say to miss this. It's also gonna be very easy for some who disagree with what I'm about to say to miss this. But Paul, let me say it again, do not miss it. Paul is talking to every single one of us throughout this passage. See, today we are really just continuing what we started last week when we studied verses 18 through 25. And if you remember, I told you that Paul in these verses, starting in verse 18, is beginning to lay out an indictment of all humanity, every one of us. He's going to be making this indictment all the way through chapter 1, through chapter 2, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 20. And again, I told you that that Paul is going after what we might call pagan-style Gentile sin in Romans chapter 1. He is showing how, how their rebellion against God and the resulting idolatry manifests itself. In Romans 2, which we'll get to next week, Paul addresses Jewish people, or we might say today religious or moral or spiritual people, and he talks about how their rebellion and their resulting idolatry manifests itself. And then in Romans 3, Paul just kind of brings it all to a conclusion where he says again and again and again, everyone is guilty before God. As verse 10 says, none is righteous. No, not one. In other words, like we said last week, we all 
are sinners, amen? We all have rejected God and then replaced God with idols that our, our hearts and our hands build. We all deserve God's wrath, and that means, as we saw last week, we all only have one hope, and that is the gospel. Now, you need to be reminded, these verses we're studying today are just one part of Paul's case. And I also think we, we need to just own this, that what Paul is saying in these verses is highly offensive to modern people, maybe even some of you sitting here right now. Our, our culture at large in general really doesn't believe in sin and wrath and, and judgment, and our culture doesn't want anyone to talk about those things. But I think we need to be reminded sometimes that God's word never bows to our feelings. There are, there are two broad ways today that I want to uh, show you that Paul is telling us about and, and how the fall affects us all. And again, just to assure your soon-to-be troubled hearts, uh, we're gonna spend way more time in the first one, okay? And, and by the way, I just want you to know ahead of time, this is one of those messages where it is extremely important that you all listen very, very quickly, okay? Because I have a lot to say, and so you need to pray that I, I, I get through it in a timely way. But here's the first way that the fall affects us all. Our desires are disordered. And again, keep the word all in front of all of these things. Our desires are disordered. Remember last week we saw in verses 18 through 23 that our human condition as sinners is to suppress the truth. We don't want to see and believe what our eyes and our hearts tell us is ultimately true. And Paul says, as a result, our, our thinking becomes futile. Our hearts grow dark. That's verse 21. And he says then in verse 23, we exchange God's glory for images, which is idolatry. And here's what Paul is telling us. Paul is saying that we are worshiping and wanting creatures. God created us to worship him and so whenever we reject God, we always replace God with other gods. In other words, when you stop worshiping God, you don't stop worshiping. You just end up worshiping something else. And our, our fallen condition has sinners, as sinners, Paul says, has, has warped even our internal desire so, so that not only is our, our worship off, but our wanting is also off. See, again, when we turn from God and we stop worshiping God, we, we don't stop wanting things. We just want the wrong things. And that's what Paul is talking about in verses 24 and 25, which lead right into today's text. He says there, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Now what we're gonna be talking about is what Paul addresses here is that one of the prime places that our wrong worship and our wrong wants show up is in the sexual realm. Paul is showing us here, we actually see it all throughout the Bible, this, this consistent link between idolatry and sexual sin. 
Just one example we could notice in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul talks about how the Thessalonians turned from serving idols to uh, serve the true and living God. That's verse nine. Paul says the gospel came to them not only in word, but it came with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, they were fully convinced of the gospel and so they turned from their idols to worship the true living God. And then he says this in chapter four. He says to them, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. In other words, this is what we're made for, not in passionate lust like the pagans, and notice this last phrase, who do not know God. So why did the Gentiles live in passionate lust, not in holiness and honor? Why did they give themselves to sexual immorality? Paul says it's because they don't know God. In other words, they're, they're looking for transcendence and joy and intimacy and love anywhere they find it because they don't know God. See, our souls are made for God. Our, our souls are made to be caught up in the beauty and transcendence of God in the joy and intimacy of a real relationship with God. And you, you don't have that, then you're gonna try to find it anywhere. And most often we turn to the sexual realm for that because this is where people lose, them, lose themselves and feel euphoric joy, where they, where they feel a kind of a transcendence. And Paul is saying here, there is a connection. When you turn away from God, you will most often look for some kind of pleasure in the sexual realm. This is why people are addicted to pornography the intimacy and love they're longing for, they are made to find it in God, but they've turned from God, and so they turn to a screen. This is why people live promiscuous and immoral lives. They're trying to find an intimacy, joy, and love somewhere, anywhere. They haven't turned to God. It was Bruce Marshall, an author, who said, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. You see, when we refuse the beauty and love and intimacy and joy that God offers us in knowing him, delighting in him, we will always look for it somewhere else, but often in the sexual realm. And that's what's happening in the Gentile world that Paul is describing here. In verses 26 and 27, what Paul is doing is highlighting one way that this manifests itself in that first century Gentile culture and also in ours, and that is same-sex desires and acts. Now, for Paul, this is a, a clear example of suppressing the truth about God and how God's made the world, of, of exchanging the truth about God and God's world for a lie. There's this vertical exchange that Paul mentions three times in verses 23 and 25 and 26 that God is exchanged for something else and it leads to this horizontal exchange where same-sex acts are exchanged for heterosexual acts. Now, when we read this passage, uh, there are two broad ways that people tend to approach it. I'm gonna give them the label, the traditionalist way and the revisionist way. And the traditionalist way understands these verses in line with how Christians have historically, basic unanimously uh, understood the, them for 2,000 years. 
But I want to point out to us, because I think it's very important, there is a temptation for the traditionalist, and that is to weaponize these verses and to fail to see our own distorted desires and loves while we stand in judgment over those who who are living out same-sex desires. Here's what I wanna say, and I wanna be very clear about this. If you read these verses, this passage we've just read, and you see them mainly directed at gay people and you weaponize these verses against gay people, then you are, you will be minimizing and downgrading and downplaying the rest of the sins that Paul mentions, particularly in verses 29 to 31. You will also, if you do this, be failing to listen to Romans 2, 1, gonna get here next week, where Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I'm gonna come back to it again and again and again. I want you to hear it. Paul's central point is that all of us have rejected God's design for our lives. Say all of us. We have all manifested that rejection in some way. And we, we manifest that rejection and sin in different ways, but in the end, we're all guilty. We all stand under God's judgment. And so to the traditionalists, I, I wanna be clear. Paul's words in these verses are not meant to mark gay people off as some uniquely heinous type of sinner. It's not what he's saying, not his intention. In fact, there are many people who identify as gay or lesbian and they are kind and generous people and they are, they are people who can make great friends and great neighbors. And some of you know that and some of you would know that if your experience of gay people wasn't limited to the social media feed libs of TikTok. See, the point, again, gay people is not that gay people are extreme sinners. The point Paul is making is that all of humanity, every person, gay or straight, religious or irreligious, is a guilty sinner under God's judgment, but all loved by God, all in need of Christ and God's saving grace. That's the point that Paul is making, and we have so often missed that. See, part of why if you're not convinced, part of why I, I know that, that same-sex acts are not the, this is true, is that same-sex acts are not the only sins that Paul addresses. I want you to uh, read this passage again and again, and I want you to see the whole flow of it. But look again at verses 29 to 31. Did you see that list? Did anybody feel bad when you read some of the things in that list? I mean, be honest with yourself. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand or anything, but as we read these verses, wouldn't we have to say that we are all guilty of many of those things? That's a real good place for an amen if we're being honest. I mean, just look at the list. Covetousness, guilty. Malice, guilty. Envy, guilty. Murder, Well, Jesus says, if you hate someone in your heart, you you killed them in your heart. So, verdict, guilty. Strife, guilty. Deceit, no, I don't do that one. Oh, yeah, now guilty. (laughs) Disobedient to parents. 
Let's do a hand raise on that, right? We have all been guilty of that, right? Every single one of us. So here's what I'm saying. If you take what Paul is saying seriously and you don't cherry pick which sins you think are worse than others, we are all guilty. Paul even mentions gossip. I mean, let's be honest with each other. Who in here thinks that gossip is worthy of the internal damnation and judgment of God? We don't think like that, do we? I mean, in fact, we have a church word for gossip. We call it prayer request, right? (laughs) And yet, do not miss this. In this list, Paul's just going down the ways we've distorted you know, God's will for our lives and he gets to gossip and it's just part of the list because Paul says it's worthy of judgment. We, we therefore, if we gossip, cannot sit in judgment, you know, over a gay person as if our sin is like minor league. Paul puts them both in the, the same list and we could just go on. If you're filled with envy and greed or if you're arrogant and boastful or if you rage with anger, if you hate people, that don't share our sexual morals, or, or even look at verse 31, if we're heartless toward the suffering and poor and marginalized, you know, we don't care about those people. He, he speaks of being heartless and ruthless. See, all of these things put us under the judgment of God as much as anyone. So if, if we as traditionalists, uh, if we are going to be what I've labeled traditionalists about this passage. And I wanna be clear, I believe to stay true to God's word, we must be. We must hold this position, but we must also not weaponize this text to, to make gay people feel like you know, they're the first class sinners while we excuse and downgrade and rationalize and downplay our own sins. I don't know if you've thought about this, but... In our Southwinds family, there are same-sex attracted people who live with unwanted desires and who are being faithful to Jesus and who are submitting their sexuality to him. And how we speak about this topic could grieve or dishonor them when in fact they are worthy of honor for the depths of their devotion to Jesus for submitting some of the strongest and most deeply felt innate desires to him and choosing to walk in obedience to him. That's the traditionalist temptation. Let's talk about the revisionist. And we're gonna spend some time here because many of you have encountered some of these, these arguments about uh, what others have said Paul is really talking about. And the revisionists, they take 2,000 years of church history and we, they say, well, we think the church has just been wrong the whole time. And, and not only about this passage in Romans, but in all the places the Bible mentions homosexuality. And so I wanna say this before I get into it. As I've read those who take this position, as I've talked to people who want to interpret scripture in this revisionist way, I, I don't, see them as doing this out of some overt desire to defy God and and God's word. I think they intend to be helpful. I think they look, and and some of you are in this place right now, they look and they see people who experience same-sex attraction, and at the same time, those people desire to follow Jesus. They believe that Jesus is God's son. They believe that he died on the cross for our sins, that God raised him from the dead, and they want to follow that Jesus, and yet they also wrestle with their desires 
and the prospect of never having a long-term monogamous relationship for the rest of their lives. And, and so at one level, it is understandable that, that some people gravitate to an interpretation that, that affirms monogamous same-sex relationships. And I've, I've talked with people who struggle with this. And I think that our response must always be one of compassion while we simultaneously hold fast to the truth of God's word. I think we have to be there and do that. I I think we have to encourage people who are struggling here with Paul's words in Philippians where Paul says, I have suffered the loss of everything and everything is rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Jesus will be enough for you. And God has put you in a family and, and God's family should be enough for you. And as Jesus Church, we need to commit to being alongside people who wrestle here. And so it's what we must say as fellow sinners to all people who struggle with any kind of disordered desires. If we have compassion on and come alongside anyone struggling with any other of these sins that Paul mentions in these verses, then why would we not do it in this case? Why would we not do it here? Now, with that in mind, I wanna address how revisionists understand Romans 1. Maybe you've read some of these things, heard some, some talks like this. I wanna try to answer this from God's word. And there's some claims that revisionists make. The first one is that Paul was not um, addressing here monogamous, consensual, committed same-sex relationships, the kind we have today, that that just wasn't on his radar, that Paul was speaking about something totally different, either like male prostitution or you know, males selling their bodies to other men, or he's speaking of what's called pederasty, which, which is exploitative man, a typically man-boy sexual relationship where a man is using a boy for sexual pleasure. And part of the reason they would mention that is in the ancient Greco-Roman world, it was acceptable. I mean, it really was. It wasn't a very big deal for socially superior men to have same-sex relationships with socially inferior men. It might be a wealthy man that used a male slave or used a child or, or used a prisoner of war for sexual pre, uh, pleasure. And so revisionists would say what Paul's talking about here is the sin that's in the abuse of power. He's not talking about committed, consensual, same-sex relationships between societal equals. He's dealing with exploitation. So what's the response uh, to this revisionist interpretation? Well, let me give you three observations First of all, we need to note that Paul in Romans 1 includes lesbian relationships, women who've exchanged natural relations and are engaging in sexual acts with other women. And here's why that's significant. Scholars all agree, whatever part of the spectrum they're on, that first century female homosexual relationships were typically consensual. It wasn't ever women with slave girls, etc. A female version of pederasty did not exist in the Greco-Roman culture. And so, including women in this list means that Paul's not dealing with exploitative power dynamics here. Second, Paul also talks, notice in verse 27, about how men burned with passion for one another. Now, that doesn't exclude abusive sexual practices, but it does tell us Paul's focus is addressing something that's mutual and consensual, burning with passion for one another, not someone exploiting someone else against their will. 
And then third, the historical reality is that ancient peoples actually did know about long-term monogamous same-sex relationships. It's just not true um, to say that they didn't. I could give you many, many examples of this. Just give you one. N.T. Wright is a leading Christian scholar. He's a classicist. He has expertise in Greek classical literature. And this is what he says. As a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's symposium or when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practices of homosexuality, that it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as longer-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. Plato's hundreds of years before Paul. The idea that, that Paul expresses that, uh, the, the idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men of whatever. Of course, there was plenty of that then as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing they knew about the whole range of options. So I just wanna say the argument that Paul's not talking about uh, the kind of relationships we see today, it's not really a valid argument. It doesn't hold. A second claim that revisionists make has to do with a phrase that Paul uses in verse 26. The ESV translates it contrary uh, to nature. Uh, in Greek, it's two words, parafusin. Uh, fusin is a word we get our word physics from, and you kind of see how that moves over to physical. Uh, the idea is against nature. And so revisionists say that Paul is speaking about heterosexuals who commit homosexual acts contrary to who they are in their nature or their own personal orientation. They, these are heterosexuals who commit homosexual acts just purely out of excessive lust. So they are just acting, in other words, in a way contrary to who they really are. Now, how do we understand this phrase, parafusin? Well, again, if you go to the Greek literature, it was first used by Plato um, in the context of same-sex intercourse. And then Preston Sprinkle, a recent author, points out in his book, which is entitled People to be Loved. And by the way, I recommend this book. It handles the, the biblical text uh, well, but he also interacts uh, with revisionist arguments with a lot of grace and kindness. And Sprinkle points out that this phrase, parafusin, was used by Greco-Roman moral philosophers as well as Greek-speaking Jews who believed that same-sex intercourse was, quote, contrary to the will of God or contrary to the design of nature. And so that just tells us Paul is speaking about something that's against God's design, against the natural uh, way that God has, has created. And in this context, Paul is using this phrase, contrary to nature, in the context also of creation and gender. He's not speaking about personal orientation, which by the way, this is a very, very modern idea. This is not a concept that people anywhere would have held a, a century ago like, like we do today. Paul is using Genesis language, creator, creation. He's referring to what God has made to base his argument. Uh, one more thing, Paul also in verse 27, 6 and 27 uses specific a gender-specific words for male and female. 
Now, the Greek language has a couple different words you could use to refer to males, a couple different words you could use uh, to refer to females, but he uses the specific words that specifically delineate maleness and femaleness. He doesn't use generic words for mankind. And the words that Paul uses also, again, connecting to creation, are the same words used in the Greek translation of the creation narrative back in Genesis 1. They're the words that say God created us male and female. And they're very specific about gender, about anatomically and biologically complementary beings with a capacity for procreation and pleasure. And so I think when you consider all this, it is clear that the revisionist argument doesn't work. Paul is talking about God's created order, about God's design, not a person's inclination, Paul is saying that same-sex relations are a suppression of that reality. He says they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. It is an exchange of truth for a lie. In verse 27, he calls it an error, a departure from God's design. So again, whether you would agree that Paul is right or wrong, you have to see that Paul is basing his argument in creation, not something that's just happening in the culture not something that's just happening internally with a person's innate desires. He, he would say it is something that transcends culture uh, or anything that we might feel inside us. Preston Sprinkle uh, summarizes it like this. He says, if Paul situates the same-sex relations, and it's Romans 1, 26 and 7, in the context of departing from the creator's, creator's intention, then this suggests that Paul's words were, are not limited to some cultural way of behaving. That is, Paul doesn't say that certain types of same-sex relations were taboo in his Greco-Roman environment and therefore they are wrong. He says, or seems to assume, that what is wrong with same-sex relations transcends culture. Violating God-given gender boundaries is universal and absolute. They go against the way God created males and females and intended them to relate to each other sexually. In other words... The plain reading of Romans 1 is that same-sex sexual acts are always wrong. Regardless of the cultural context, regardless of motives, regardless of the innate desires that may be at play, because those acts contradict God's created design for human sexuality. And that means, like every other sin, they, unless repented of, result in God's judgment. So those, again, arguments that revisionists make, uh, I don't think are valid arguments. They do not align with Paul's words. But there's a third claim that I think we need to respond to that revisionists make. And and this is a claim that moves to the teachings of Jesus. And the claim boils down to this. They say, well, Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality. And and I want us to look at um, this by looking at both the words and the ways of Jesus. And we'll start with the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say? And it is actually true that Jesus never specifically mentions homosexuality in the Gospels. It's also true that Jesus never mentions incest, but no one makes an argument that incest is okay because Jesus doesn't mention it. He also never mentions kidnapping, but no one ever makes an argument that that's okay for that reason. In other words, Jesus never mentions a number of issues that the Bible clearly addresses. Here's what we need to remember. Jesus is a a first century Jewish rabbi 
who affirmed, and we know this explicitly throughout the Gospels, who affirmed the validity of the Old Testament scriptures. And the Old Testament scriptures condemn same-sex acts in numerous places. So when Jesus speaks about sexual sexuality, he's speaking as someone who agrees with the Old Testament, God's word, and its teachings on this subject. Now, let me add this to this, to what I've just said. Jesus did specifically speak against sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word that's translated immorality is the word porneia. I think you can see what English words we get from that. And in first century Judaism, porneia included adultery, premarital sex, incest, same-sex sexual activity. It included anything outside the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. And that's undisputed. No one disagrees with that. And so Jesus, in saying that, is including homosexuality. But we can add to that, when Jesus is asked a question about marriage in Matthew 19 by some Pharisees, Notice how he responds. He goes back to God's creation of male and female in Genesis 1. Verse 4, he answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And again, he's using the same Greek words here Paul uses in Romans 1. Verse 5 and 6, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. So again, Jesus goes back to Genesis 1. And he says, God made them male and female. And it's kind of an interesting thing. If you go back and read the creation account, all through it, there's this, this kind of binary thing going on in God's creation. There is day and night. There is land and sea. There is air and ground. There is male and female. It's part of how God created these two genders. We are told God made them for a special purpose. He's given to them the joy of an exclusive and permanent one flesh sexual relationship. He created them male and female so that they could fulfill God's command to go out and fill the earth with image bearers of God. So Jesus may not specifically address it, but it's clear that he supports what the Old Testament teaches. I I wanna explicitly say it like this. You can write this down. Jesus looks at sexuality through the lens of God's creation. I want you to think about this. I'm gonna kind of go in another direction to kind of flesh this out. In Genesis, you remember what God said about Adam? He said, it is not good to be what? To be alone. And here's what God is not saying. God is not saying, you know what? I'm a pretty good guy, but I'm just not quite enough for Adam. He needs somebody else. That's not what God is saying. He is saying that Adam cannot fulfill his divinely ordained purpose of ruling over this world and filling the earth with image bearers alone. We would look back from the New Testament perspective and say that Adam needs someone that reflects the Trinity. And remember, there's that interesting word in the creation account, let us make man in our own image. 
he needs, Adam does, someone who is distinct from him, yet that he could become one with. And in the Trinity, we know today that we have, you have God the Father and God the Son, and the love between the Father and the Son is so real and powerful that it is made concrete in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's the church's teaching of the Trinity, this community of love. And so when God puts Adam on this earth, because it's not good to be alone, he cannot fully reflect the Trinitarian image alone. And so God gives him someone to be in a face-to-face relationship with him that he can give and receive love with, a, a love so real that it gets concretized in another image bearer, another human being. And so therefore, the image of the Trinity is, is rounded out on planet Earth. And so God's intention we see was that one man and one woman would come together in this relationship. And God did not give Adam an animal. He did not give him another Adam. He did not give him a group of Eves. You know, we got polyamory kind of rising up around us now. He gave him a woman, one woman, a singular relationship. And Adam and Eve are, are made anatomically and biologically complementary so that they could fulfill their calling to become one flesh for pleasure and procreation, filling the earth with more image bearers. And so when you look at the total picture, according to Jesus, the only normative expression of human sexuality is between male and female and between a husband and a wife. And and sex is created by God is intended to bind one man and one woman together in this permanent, unbreakable, exclusive union that brings them both physical pleasure but also facilitates a whole life commitment. It has this inherent potential to bear children. And of course, that potential has been frustrated by the fall, and we understand that, and we, we know many feel the pain of that, but, but it has the inherent potential to, build, uh, to uh, bear children and to fulfill the divine calling to fill the earth with God's image bears. That's God's design for human sexuality. And so we have to hold on to the words of Jesus. Just because Jesus never says the word homosexuality does not mean that he affirms it or does not mean that he thinks it just doesn't matter. Look at the, next at the ways of Jesus because again, in holding to the words of Jesus, we need to hold to the ways of Jesus. And I, I want you to think about with me for a moment the way that Jesus always interacted with sinners like you and me. He was called what? A friend of sinners, right? He was called a, a, a glutton and a drunk. Do you, do you know why Jesus was called a drunken glutton? Because he, he hung out eating and drinking with sinners. He befriended sinners. He welcomed sinners like us as his friends. He loved sinners like us. He laid his life down for sinners like us. He, he actually calls sinners like us sick, and he says he's the only physician that can bring true healing. And of course, he died for people like us, people that he deeply disagreed with. Maybe we need to be reminded today that Jesus deeply disagrees with every one of us on something. You ever thought about that? If you don't think 
Jesus disagrees with you on anything, let me just tell you, as your pastor who loves you, you're wrong and you have refashioned Jesus in your own image. If you have a Jesus who always agrees with you or a Jesus who always will vote the exact way you vote, you don't know the real Jesus. Jesus deeply disagrees with every single person on this planet about something. Now, some more than others, yes. And yet, he dies for people he deeply disagrees with. See, our our disagreement with others in matters of gender and sexuality or any other issue in no way releases us from our obligation and our calling to love those people, befriend those people, serve those people, and seek their well-being as image bearers of God, to treat those people as those who have dignity and worth and value before the God who created them. We must not abandon people that Jesus loves. I mean, think especially about how Jesus interacted with sexually broken people, whether it was a woman caught in adultery that he refuses to condemn, but he forgives her and sends her into a new life of discipleship to him, or whether it was a a prostitute with a reputation so soiled that she shows up at a dinner party one day and he anoints Jesus' feet with oil and with her tears, wiping his feet with her hair, and Jesus defends her to a bunch of religious Pharisees. He calls her a daughter and announces her sins are forgiven and he tells her to go in peace. This is the kind of love that that Jesus had for all kinds of sinners. But haven't you noticed it seems that those most broken most moved his heart and stirred his mercy? Have you noticed that? Maybe, maybe if we have not walked in the ways of Jesus, even though our interpretations are orthodox and correct, maybe the response for some of us to God's word today need to be that we repent, that we repent of our self-righteousness and our moral snobbery and our insensitive and dehumanizing, maybe hateful speech that we may have used about people we don't agree with in certain moral areas. Maybe we need to repent of seeing, quote, them as worse than, quote, us. And maybe, maybe we need to choose to see all of us as just, quote, us. We're all us. We're all sinners in need of grace. We need to see ourselves as those that Jesus deeply disagreed with, but he also died for. We must hold fast to the words of Jesus, yes, but we must also hold fast to the ways of Jesus and love those around us. So that's the first way the fall affects us all. With the few moments that are left, let me show you and talk about the second way, and that is that our minds are debased. And this comes from verse 28 where Paul says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to be done. And again, you must remember he's talking about everything in this list. It's affected, the fall has, not only our desires, but our minds about how we think. There's actually a play on words in the Greek text here. We don't really see it, but it literally says that human beings did not see fit to acknowledge God, and so God gave them an unfit mind or a debased mind. 
And again, let me be crystal clear in case you read verse 28 and you think, oh, it's pointing right back to verses 26 and 7. Yes, it is, but it is also pointing straight forward. Are you with me? To verses 29 through 31. See, debased and unfit minds are about all of the sins that all sinners commit. And if right now, please listen to me, people. If right now something in you is saying, no, I don't think that's right. Something in you is pushing back against that. Something in you is saying, no, 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 I don't want to think that. Then you are doing the very thing that Jesus would have you not to do. You are acting as if your sins are really not as bad as some other people's sins. But we need to let the weight of this sit heavy on us and understand that Paul is speaking to all of us. We need to hear the words in that way. Debased and unfit minds, disordered desires, they're about all the sins that all of us commit. And the same thing is true about the last verse, verse 32. Did you see it? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If you find yourself reading that and thinking, oh yeah, those people who do homosexual stuff and those people who give approval to homosexual stuff, that's who Paul's talking about. That's not all who Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about the sins of verse 26 and 7 and also the sins of verses 29 through 31. And he's addressing them all in the same way. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Now I'm gonna close with some practical applications that I think we need to keep in mind as we look at Paul's words. First, we are all guilty of sexual sin and are all offered the grace of God in Jesus. Can anybody say amen to that? It's all of us. We all need God's grace. See, all sin is essentially the fruit of the same human condition that we have rejected God's reality. We have rejected God's rule. We have rejected God's design and God's decree, his word over our lives. We've loved ourselves more than God. We've obeyed our desires over God's decree and God's desires for us. And that is true about all of us. The heterosexual who is prideful and lusting, self-righteous, promiscuous, fornicating, looking at pornography, who's also greedy, who's also damaging other image bearers through envy or strife or gossip, or you rage at people in your anger. That person has rejected God's rule and design and is under the same condemnation as the person committing same-sex acts. That's the inescapable conclusion of what Paul is saying. We all need grace. The gospel is our only hope. We've all sinned sexually, not just in deeds, but also in words and thoughts. What we've watched, what we've done to others, what we've enjoyed, we are all sexual sinners. And the good news is the early church was full of sexually broken sinners who found forgiveness and freedom and joy in Jesus. I love this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you know it? Paul says, 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed all that guilt and shame and self-loathing washed away. Paul says you were sanctified. You thought God would never want you, right? But he chose you. He set his love on you. He set you apart. You're holy and blameless in his sight now. You're justified, declared righteous before him, completely accepted by him. All of this, Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Can you imagine a testimony night in Corinth? You know, some guy stands up and says, oh man, I I used to be a complete drunkard and everybody's like, we know, man, we all saw it. (laughs) He's like, I was so hammered most of the time and then I met Jesus and he forgave me and he cleansed me and he empowered me. He put his spirit in me gave me a new family, he gave me self-control, and I am now walking in sobriety and joy. Then another guy stands up and says, well, I was a swindler, and somebody says, I know, Bob, you still owe me 20 bucks. Um, He said, I was a swindler, I was so greedy, I was so dishonest, but Jesus saved me. And and then another one stood up and said, I used to to live a sexually promiscuous life, same-sex acts, heterosexual acts, didn't matter, and Jesus saved me. He washed me, he sanctified me. See, it's all these things that Paul is mentioning here. See, if if we don't repent and receive God's grace, they will keep us out of God's kingdom. But the goodness of the gospel is that Jesus is actually really good at saving people out of these sins. He's so good at it. And so we can all be washed and made holy and declared righteous, given God's spirit, freed from shame and self-loathing, given a new identity as a child of God, placed within the family of God. There is always hope. Always hope. And maybe you need to hear that today. Second thing, we must all submit our desires to the Lord Jesus, Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is all of us. Because of the fall, we have all distorted and disordered desires, unwanted desires contrary to God's nature. All of us have minds that are debased and unfit. We don't think the way God created us to think. There are things that we will want, all of us, that God doesn't want for us. And sometimes we're gonna want those things deeply. We're gonna want them so badly that it touches us at the place of our felt identities. But hear me, an is is not a not. What we feel is not an indication of how we should act or what we are made for. And when we give those disordered desires authority in our lives and we submit to those desires, which is what our culture tells us we must do, when we do that instead of submitting to God's desires and God's design, it leads to rebellion against God and to the dishonoring of our own lives. It leads us farther away from what God intended us to live, how he intended us to live and how he intended us to be. And so all of us have to live lives of submission to the rule of Jesus and to his uh, desires for us. 
And once we become Christ followers, here's the reality. We never stop doing that. I, 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 we've got some you know, teenagers in here and some unmarried people in here, especially if you're a teenager. I wanna just say this to you. When, when you get married, it doesn't mean that all your wrong sexual desires are gonna go away. Like when you're a teenager, you just thought that. Once I get married, I'll never lust again. The people laughing are all married. See, I, I did some research on this. You are going to keep sinning sexually. You can Google that. A- actually, don't, don't Google that. Just, no, don't, don't Google that. Just take my word for it, okay? See, we will live our whole lives because of the fall until we're glorified in heaven with desires inside us that are sometimes raging, but they're contrary to God's will And so we have to submit those desires to Jesus. And that means if you're single with same-sex attraction, you have to submit that desire to Jesus. If you're single with heterosexual desires, you have to submit those desires. And we have people, single people in our church who who deeply want to be married and yet have submitted their, their lives to Christ. And they've had opportunities, but they didn't believe God wanted that for them. And so they didn't do it. They submitted their lives to Jesus. And this is what all of us have to do. And I'll just say this. If, if you are single living with same-sex desires or opposite-sex desires, here is the clear teaching of Scripture until God gives you the ability and the opportunity to enter into a marriage relationship that he would endorse, he calls you to a life of singleness and celibacy. That's what the Bible teaches. And God says he will be enough for you. And God says his church will be family enough for you. God says he will sustain you in the things he calls you to. So we need to be people who obey God and submit to God and encourage those around us to to live with God. I wanna encourage you, maybe some of you need to hear this, that you, you don't ever buy the cultural lie that sex is essential for your joy as a human being. That's a lie. And here's how I know. Jesus was the most perfect, most complete, most fulfilled person the universe has ever known. Would you agree? And yet Jesus was single and celibate his entire life. Jesus is our model. Jesus is who we follow. Jesus is our life. Third, we must love those who reject God's design and decree, but we must not affirm them in that rejection. Again, this is the command of verse 32 where Paul says, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And let me be clear, Paul's not talking about a death penalty here. Not at all, especially if we understand that he's talking about all the sins committed. So don't think that this is what he's saying. He's talking about eternal judgment. Can you agree as a central doctrine of our faith that we believe that we're all sinners and we all deserve God's judgment, right? That's what Paul's saying here, that's all. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only approve them, do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So Paul says it's a violation of God's will for us to give approval to those who practice the kind of things listed in this chapter. And I think it's important we, we think about this as we close. The reality 
is that in our culture today, same-sex acts and relationships have been so normalized, it has become abnormal not to celebrate them. In fact, not to celebrate is to get branded a bigot. It's forbidden in our culture to forbid. And, And many of us may have children or friends or neighbors, and we have to make this decision to be faithful to God Again, it's the words and the ways of Jesus. We, we need to be people who say, my heart is always open to you and, and I, I love you and I want the best for you and I'm always gonna be available to you and whatever you need from me, but it is not loving of me to affirm your drift from God's good design and God's clearly revealed will. See, we're, we're, we can be open and welcoming and loving, but we're not called to be affirming of relationships that God forbids. And it's hard. It is so tempting because we want to show love. And again, we've, we, we have been taught and we've, many of us bought into the cultural lie that says love equals affirmation and agreement, but it doesn't. We want to love We want to preserve relationships, but we have a Lord and his name is Jesus and we must submit to him before all else. And that means, I think, we have to be prepared to deal with the fallout and there will be fallout. So we can posture our hearts and be welcoming and loving and open, but we also have to be faithful to Jesus and just prepare for consequences. Let me close. My ultimate concern here really is for us, the church. It is so easy for us to find ourselves thinking about all the sin out there, right? But God is concerned, first and foremost, about the sin where? In here. In here. Judgment begins, what does the Bible say? With the household of God. It begins at God's house. And so if we, if we think through this issue of sexuality, And if our minds just go out to the kinds of things that other people are doing, then God's word for you is you need to turn your gaze in here. Because Jesus wants, first of all, a faithful and pure and devoted people. That's where he wants to start. Not by cleaning up the world out there, but by getting the church right with him. Again, this message is about how the fall affects us all. And so we need to hear that God is speaking to us and our hearts and our sins first before we think of anything else. Jesus died for us all to set us all free from sin, amen? And that's the gospel and that's the joy and the freedom. Let's pray. Father God, We ask you today by your Holy Spirit to work in your people's hearts and lives, us, Lord, in us. Lord, grant us all repentance where we need it. And Lord, for those who do not yet know Jesus in a relationship of trust, we ask you to grant both repentance and faith that that people today would come to know you through Jesus, your son. Lord, we pray uh, for those who wrestle maybe deeply with the things that we've been talking about today, that you would pour out your grace and your mercy and your kindness in their lives. Most of all, Lord, as your people, we ask you 
to purify us. We ask you to forgive us, Lord, where, where we have failed to love you and to love others. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people say.